Welcome to the podcast. With us today are two of the three candidates running for the Democratic nomination for governor. Jay Gonzalez, most recently a healthcare executive, and formerly the Secretary of Administration and Finance under Governor Deval Patrick. Welcome, Jay. Thank you for having me. And Bob Massey, a longtime Democratic activist, and most recently the head of a climate preparedness lab at UMass Boston. Welcome, Bob. Glad to be here. The reason I invited the two of you in today was because you signed a joint statement this week prodding Governor Charlie Baker to say where he stands on the constitutional amendment mandating a 4% income tax surcharge on people with incomes over $1 million. Boy, that's a mouthful. That amendment now appears headed to the ballot after lawmakers on Wednesday approved it for the second time. Why are two political rivals running for the same position issuing joint statements. Jay, can you start us off with that? Yeah, I can speak for myself on this and uh, look forward to Bob's answer as well. But, um, you know, we agree on this issue. And this is probably the most consequential public policy issue in Massachusetts today. It's a question about whether we're going to ask those who've been doing great to pay a little bit more in taxes to generate additional new state tax revenue that we desperately need for transportation and education. This would be a meaningful amount of new revenue. And Bob and I agree on this, and I think our coming out together in a joint statement sends a powerful message about how important we believe this is, certainly from my perspective, and I assume Bob's also, how important we think this is. And it's a fundamental difference between us and Governor Baker. He, once again, and this is consistent with the pattern, has not taken a stand on this issue. He has been pretty much against new revenue, uh, and, and, and that has been his messaging from the beginning. Um, but this is one of the most constant, this isn't just some nominal issue. And now it is going to the voters. It's going to be on the ballot in 2018, as you mentioned, Bruce. People deserve to know where their governor stands on one of the most consequential public policy issues in our state. Is he for no, no more revenue and continuing uh, to struggle through managing our budget and getting us in, in a situation where he's setting us up for a fiscal crisis and we got the rating agencies downgrading the state's bond rating for the first time in 30 years? Or is he for being honest with people about the fact we need additional revenue to make the investments we need to make to uh, move us forward? And if not this provo- proposal, then what? Uh, but I think at the very least, people need to people deserve to know where their governor stands on this issue. Bob, what about you? Well, first of all, I want to thank Jay. This was his idea, and I got a phone call from his team saying, you know, I know that we agree on this issue, um, and uh, should we do a statement together? And I, I thought it was an excellent idea. And it's important, uh, Jay and I. Um, share core democratic values. And so we're running to be governor, but governor within the Democratic Party, which has a long tradition of uh, uh, of making sure that we have fiscal fairness, that we have, um, uh, that we tackle long-term problems, and that we do so in a way that really uh, affects uh, many families in Massachusetts. So I see this as part of a much larger problem. We have been coasting on the progress of the past, We are cheating the future by refusing to make the serious investments that we need. Uh, We have much bigger fiscal problems lying ahead, uh, hundreds of bridges that need repair, and some have estimated $14 billion in backlog on on large capital programs. So this 
uh, fair share amendment is just a very logical, reasonable first step to uh, fighting that um, those those fundamental problems of inequality and uh, and. Uh, distribution that are in the uh, uh, budget today. So I think we support this very strongly and part as part of a larger challenge to the governor to take on these deep structural problems that are around the economy, that are around education, that are around transportation, uh, and they're all tied together. One of the reasons we have an affordability housing problem is people can't get from A to B, either by car or by a modern uh, public transportation system. Uh, there are places with affordable housing and other places with jobs where people aren't connected. So, And, and we have a real crisis. I, I came from UMass Boston, as you mentioned. Um, and at UMass Boston, you have students working their hearts out, doing everything they can to try and uh, get a degree that will help them in the future. And yet they're being penalized every step of the way with more and more and more debt. So uh, this, what we've tried in the past, sloughing it off on other people or pushing it out into the future, isn't working. And this is a, a very, very reasonable uh, step that doesn't even bring us up to some of the other states uh, which, tr which ask of their uh, wealthiest citizens to do even a bit more than this. So why do you think um, Baker doesn't want to take a stand on this? I, I have a few theories myself, but I, yeah. I'd like to hear what you guys think. Because um, it is a big issue and, and one that he, he always has this canned answer, I'm against taxes, yep. basically, and then goes on to say how he's managing state government well. But um, so the implication is he's opposed to it, but he doesn't per se say that. Yeah, and uh, it's consistent with the pattern. You look at the Olympics, you look at the transgender rights legislation. Mm -hmm. He didn't take a stand until he was forced to land it on his desk and, and he signed it behind closed doors. Um, you know, I would offer a very different type of leadership. People will know where I stand on issues, and they deserve to, uh, particularly on issues that are so consequential uh, to the state. You know, I, I don't know. I would only be speculating as to why he's not taking a stand on this. There was an interesting article um, in the paper today about a big fundraiser he's having on Cape Cod at a beautiful multi-million dollar home where they're going to be cigar rolling and cocktails for everybody who agrees to contribute $15,000 or more to his campaign. Um, there are going to be a lot of wealthy people there who, who may be impacted. Some of the 19,000 families in this state, very few at the very top who've been making the most. Uh, there may be some of those people who um, are going to his fundraiser who he doesn't want to have um, asked to pay a little bit more in taxes. But in my view, uh, you know, we've got a tax system right now where those who, who make the least are paying the highest percentage of their income in taxes, and those who make the most are paying the lowest. And we need a more progressive tax structure. We need to be honest about the fact that to do the things we need to do to support people and working families in this state, we need to invest more. Our transportation system broken. Everywhere I go across this state, people complain, particularly about the T. Uh, Early education and care, we're not only not making progress in making childcare and preschool affordable for people, there's no plan. Uh, and even with what we're doing today, Governor Baker's mismanaging our budget. Standard & Poor's just said so. Uh, we are, he is setting us up for a fiscal crisis. We gotta be honest about the fact we need additional revenue. Uh, we need to be honest about the fact that those at the top should pay a little bit more to help everybody get to a better place. I think that this is the fairest uh, new revenue proposal that will generate significant new revenue that can make a real difference in people's lives. 
And regardless of whether Governor Baker agrees or not, um, that's my position, and people people know it. People deserve to know where he stands. So, Bob, I, um, I, I don't disagree with what Jay just said about people need to know where he stands, but in your statement, um, you take off the lowering of the bond rating and the deficit that, that the state is facing, and you say the governor's lack of response to the mess he's gotten us into is astonishing. Mm-hmm. But to be fair... He is tackling some problems that have been ignored by his predecessors in the past. Talking about the T, he is he appointed a group to oversee it. And frankly, as someone who covers it regularly, I've never seen anything like it in state government, where they're weekly, practically on a weekly basis, trying to deal with the many, many, many problems of the T. So, but let me just ask you, since you know it well, don't you think the governor should take some responsibility for putting the T in this position originally by linking the big dude debt to T revenue? I mean, that's part of the problem, that you have the T. Almost every other part of the country, uh, cars pay for public transportation. We take a little bit from the car system, and we help provide public transportation for people who don't have cars. Massachusetts, we take from public transportation and give it to cars or to pay for cars. Um, so I think that's upside down to begin with. And the idea that he's coming in and sort of cleaning that up on the margins is, well, it's helpful. But I think uh, my deep concern is we have these large structural problems that are going to take at least 10 years to solve. For example, creating a truly modern uh, a transportation system that links people like we have, like, like we see in many, many other countries. That takes a plan, a commitment to funding, a vision for where it would go, an understanding of the economic benefits that would come from making that investment. Charlie Baker has no long-term plan. Another example of something that where he refused to act on a long-term issue uh, is around renewable energy. He had to be forced by a judge uh, to obey the law, which was the Global Warming Solutions Act. He had the opportunity to move very quickly on wind and solar. Instead, he's playing footsie with his natural gas buddies, talking about a pipe, uh, putting through a pipeline, putting compressor stations in places that people don't want them, and uh, and not laying out a really aggressive, consistent, uh, logical, business-like case for investment in that area over the next 10 years. So what we have is someone who's micromanaging at the margins and a, a system that is fundamentally broken, and he can't keep nipping and tucking and cutting to balance anymore. I mean, maybe at the beginning, he looked, he found a few things. You always have to scrape a few barnacles off the bottom of government as they uh, accumulate. But now he's looking around and cutting things that are either critically important, uh, like opioid funding, or uh, not saying how he would support this very reasonable revenue solution, and not laying out a plan. You know, he has this high approval rating. I don't understand what he's using it for as a leader. Why isn't he laying out some fundamental challenging proposals that Democrats and Republicans could agree with and would set the state in in a direction for deep improvement and lay the, the foundations for prosperity in the future? He's not doing that. So I think that's the tradition in Massachusetts is to have governors who have an understanding of where the state should go over time. And his failure to even come up with an opinion on this is exactly the kind of failure of leadership that I think prompted both Jay and me to jump into this race. Can I, can yeah. I address your point? Because the truth is, the premise of your um, question or statement was that Charlie Baker is making progress and making things better. I think that's false. I think he has made things worse. 
the budget is one example where because he, and this is what Standard & Poor's said. This isn't just Jay Gonzalez saying it. Standard & Poor's said basically because he's not following the fiscally responsible policies that we put in place when I was the Secretary of Administration and Finance, he is setting us up for a fiscal disaster. Uh, and as a result, you, if people think things are bad now with the budget, the way he's managing it, where he's scrambling once again at the end of the fiscal year to close a big budget hole. Wait until the economy turns and we got nothing in the rainy day fund to sustain the level of programs and services we have today. We are in big trouble because of him, because of his mismanagement. I, I want to say something about the T too. So um, yes, he has he has tried to improve some things at the T. We should con that should be a taken for granted. We should constantly be striving to improve management across state government. We should constantly be doing that. It was something that I um, am proud of our record of doing when I was there. But the biggest fundamental flaw, and this, this is consistent with the point Bob was making, is this uh, approach that um, Charlie Baker, when he was with uh, Governor Weld and other Republican governors have taken, this, this failure to, to be honest about what we need to do to be sustainable and properly finance and fund the services that people deserve. And the T has been shafted and underfunded for decades. Under Governor Patrick, we actually did increase funding for the T and for other transportation infrastructure. We need to do more. Uh, and to pretend like uh, tweaking here and tweaking there and jacking up rate, uh, fares on riders and cutting service for people in underserved communities is gonna squeeze a little bit more out and get our system in a state of good repair in 25 years, like that's good enough is totally unacceptable. And we gotta be honest about the fact that we need to invest more in the T and in some other areas of state government to provide people with the service they deserve. This affects people's day-to-day -day lives. Everywhere I go in the greater Boston area, people complain about the T and say the service is worse. And it's not good enough. So if I'm Capturing it correctly, you guys are saying he's a nip and tuck governor. You're you're going to be a governor. Those were his terms. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and and you're more of a broader vision of of where we need to go. So why is he so popular in the polls then? What 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 is it about him that is is making him so popular I, in the polls? I think it's really easy to be popular when you don't do anything, and you never take a stand, and you operate much more out of political cautiousness than political courage. And this issue that we're here to talk about today is a great example. He's, he doesn't want to upset anyone. Maybe he's on this side. Maybe he's on that side. He's not going to tell us. Where is the leadership? To Bob's point, where, when is he going to actually do the job he was elected to do and spend some political capital to be honest with people about how we move forward and no, improve people's lives? I just want to pick up on a point. You know, uh, people say, Charlie Baker, first of all, he's a nice guy. Well, being a nice guy is certainly not the main criterion for being governor. But um, uh, he often makes the argument, implicitly or explicitly, that I am come from management. I'm a business guy. I understand how things work. I'm running the, uh, effectively. Well, I can tell you as somebody who has a doctorate from Harvard Business School that he's failing at many basic elements of business, one of which is that if you want to have a thriving business or enterprise over time, you must keep investing. And uh, those managers who only manage, so to speak, for quarterly earnings, for what the immediate cash flow balance
responses out to me tend to do poorly. And those who do well are those who say, yes, I understand where we are today, but I'm going to put billions of dollars into where we need to be tomorrow because I understand that today's prosperity is fragile and can only be guaranteed and supported if we make these commitments way up front so that in five years and 10 years, the, the, you know, our, the younger people in this state will be able to flourish from these new forms of infrastructure and so forth. So that's one of the things. I don't think he even meets a standard of being an excellent manager or a person using business-like uh, uh, principles because this concept of investment seems to completely have disappeared from his mind. Well, the concept of taxes seems to tie him up in knots. I, I'll, I'll acknowledge that. He... It's very hard, and I've tried to talk to him about this. It's usually not in a setting where you can have a long discussion, but it's hard to pin him down on what is acceptable in terms of new revenues and what it, what kind of a tax would he accept and, and what he wouldn't. Okay. Usually it's broad-based taxes he won't accept, but then... It, Let me speak to that just very briefly. Um, taxes are painful concept. People don't like paying them. And one reason they don't like paying them is because they're already under significant economic pressure. That people's, it's hard to make a living. People are working harder for less. They have to pay more, more for education, more for health care, more for housing. So the idea that the government is, quote, just going to come along and take a little more money, that, that seems reprehensible. Unless, unless you're able to draw an image of what you would get for that. In other words, if you have, and that's where, uh, Baker's lack of vision comes back to bite him. Because if you were able to say, yes, it's going to cost more money, but you're going to get this gleaming transportation system that's going to link Springfield and Massachusetts and Worcester and a high-speed train are going to bring about the north-south rail are going to connect people in a regional way as happens in Europe in countries that are the same size as Massachusetts where they've been investing in this for 20 years and now have systems where people rarely need cars even to get between cities uh, that kind of model would be available here if we painted that vision did the design and then went to people and said, look, this might cost a few more dollars, but imagine how much easier it would be if you're a small business person to get employees to come to you. Imagine if you're a single mother, how easy it would be to get around and you don't have to take uh, buy a car on top of everything else. So you, ha you can't just say, I'm going to raise taxes. Nobody wants to do that. But if you say... Uh, we together are going to identify the things that matter to us most, that will have the biggest impact on us as, as families and as small businesses. And those might cost something. You build the political will. But that political will has to come from someone who has the political imagination. And that's what we have here is a failure of imagination and of communication. So, uh, And it's, it's frustrating because the opportunities are actually huge. And I think both Jay and I, as we travel around the city and, and the state, we just see this wouldn't really be that hard to fix. But there's, there's no real willingness to tackle it. Um, you both are trying to get the Democratic nomination for governor. So... You've been talking about Charlie Baker, legitimately. Yeah. That's yeah. who you want to unseat. But your own party uh, controls Beacon Hill, controls the legislature up there. And as you're well aware, Baker has often said to them, you're spending too much. Don't keep putting money back in the budget. You know, I have to veto more. You're leaving the problem to me. Doesn't seem to phase them at all. They don't even seem concerned. We're, we're less than, we're about a half a month away from the end of this year, and he's got a 400, $450 million budget deficit to close. 
No one seems to know how he's going to do it. They don't seem to mind. They don't seem to care. What's going on in this party? Now, I know the party's energized about Donald Trump. Is it energized about what's going on in here in the state? Well, first of all, the governor's the leader of the state. He constantly touts the fact how great he is at bipartisanship. If he can't get the legislature to do what he wants them to do, then he's not doing a very good job at bipartisanship. What good is getting along and being collaborative with everyone if it's to no end? Um, you know, put aside all of that, uh, the truth is Charlie Baker's been irresponsible also. The, the, what you're talking about in terms of the disagreements between him and the Democratic legislature on stuff that he's not wanted to approve in spending is on the margins. The budgets he's been proposing, the way in which he's been uh, proposing to suspend the policies that we put in place that Standard & Poor's slapped him for not following. Charlie Baker is responsible for all that too, and he hasn't disagreed about that stuff. So even on his own, he he, he has been, even if the legislature did everything that he asked, it would be irresponsible. Um, I was in government Governor Patrick, Secretary of Administration and Finance. And while I was there, I worked very closely with the legislature and legislative leaders to get very big things done during hard times, not just the budgets during the recession and the bond bills, but um, transportation reform in 2009. I was Governor Patrick's point person for negotiating that. The health care cost containment law in 2012, municipal health reform, pension reform, big things that were hard, and we got them done. Because it takes not just getting along, but saying, we need to make progress. Here's where we need to go. Listening, working in good faith with the legislative leaders and other stakeholders, and figuring out what is that path for how we get there. That's the way government works. It's good that government works that way. But we need a leader in the governor's office who is going to push toward making progress. And right now, we're not only not making progress on a lot of big issues, we're not, Governor Baker is not even trying. And that is not good enough. Jay, one, one specific, when you were there under Deval Patrick, yeah. the rainy day fund, which was a primary focus of what Standard & Poor's was mm-hmm. talking about when lowering the state's bond rating, uh, Baker and the legislature have continued money that would normally gone in. They've diverted that to, yeah. the, to the operating budget. Didn't that occur under under your watch as no, well? No. So we put in place, we did things like for the first time created a, a, um, a long-term fiscal policy that uh, with in consultation with economists like Jim Stock, who ended up on President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, Alan Clayton Matthews, basically saying, based on the revenue sources we have, what can we afford over time in terms of the level of spending. And when we're in bad times like the recession, like when I was there, it's okay to use one-time resources, rainy day fund money, to help support that sustainable level of spending. But when we're in good times, we need to put that extra money that we're um, above that, that sustainable amount in the rainy day fund so that we can sustain programs and services over time. We put policies in place like that and we followed them. When I was there, we increased the balance in the rainy day fund by following those policies by a billion dollars. A billion dollars. When I left, it was 1.6 billion. It was 600 million when I started, 1.6 when I left. Charlie Baker's basically put nothing in the rainy day fund during a time when we should be putting hundreds of millions of dollars in so that when the economy turns, it's there to protect the level of programs and services we're supporting today. So I'd like to... Uh, and so it, 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 
my record on this looks very different from Governor Baker's, and that's why when I was there, we got the highest bond ratings in state history and why uh, he just got downgraded. Uh, just to build on that, I think one of the aspects of leadership in a politically contested environment is that you build support, you put a spotlight on something, and then you build support for change. You don't necessarily have to specify way up front exactly how that change will be. But the governor has uh, the uh, responsibility and opportunity to put a spotlight on core issues. So imagine if the governor said, okay, for the next two months, we're going to hold meetings all over the state of all kinds to focus on these long-term structural um, problems, financial problems. And we're going to ask the people of Massachusetts in different formats, how do they want to deal with this? In other words, uh, there are all kinds of ways to bring a Democratic voice other than the state legislature into this process. You can influence, and I've done this on a national and international level, bring people together who have very different views and say, okay, well, at least we share one thing, which is a desire to find a solution. Now, what's your solution? What's your solution? Is there anything common among our proposed solutions? What would it take now that we've gotten everything out on the table to make progress from there? So, so I've had the experience of bringing people together who come, in, in one case, human rights activists, climate uh, activists, uh, accountants, government officials, um, labor representatives uh, to work on a global project. And we came out not only with agreement, but with a new international institution that measured sustainability for big companies and is in use by major investors. Now, I just mentioned that because that was something that at the beginning no one thought was possible. Through a process of convening and putting a spotlight and having uh, serious discussions about the long-term objectives, and then once we had a set of long-term objectives, then we build the agreement, the sort of reverse engineering about how we're going to get there. This isn't this isn't a dark art. This is something that leaders know how to do. And that's why it's surprising you don't see Governor Baker. Instead, he says, it's too tough. We can't do it. Um, and he celebrates these micro uh, events and micro achievements that are just not, I mean, you know, they're just not worthy of the governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which used to be famous worldwide for our ability to innovate and, uh, and played a particular role in the United States as being a beacon of what change can look like. That's just stopped uh, in terms of government right now. So we're talking about this millionaire's tax and tax revenue. But well, we were. <laughs> we were. But, the, but there, there does seem to be something going on with our, our tax revenues in this state. Yeah. So the last several years when Baker's been in office, the economy's been doing very well. The state's been doing very well. But the projections about revenues, and these are bipartisan, you know, all sorts of groups, have all consistently said it's going to come in here and it's come in less than that. And it seems to be happening over and over again. Any thoughts about is some sort of problem in our tax structure that's not bringing in the right revenues? Or No, uh, it's, a, it's a problem in approach. Um, the truth is that if you look at most of our tax revenue, uh, core tax revenue sources, they're coming in pretty, pretty close to what was projected. Income tax revenue from wages, pretty much right on what was projected. Sales tax revenue, a little less, but not, not hugely less. Corporate tax revenue, I think a little higher than projected. The biggest tax revenue source that Governor Baker has irresponsibly been budgeting against, which is not coming in as projected, is income taxes from investments like stocks, capital gains tax revenue. And that is traditionally very volatile. 
Um, it, it, it lags, and so it's very hard to predict, which is why we put it in place a policy at the time, which is one of the reasons we got a rating increase, that we shouldn't budget irresponsibly against that revenue, that there's only a certain amount that's reasonable to budget against. And if we're lucky and it comes in higher, all that extra amount should go in the rainy day fund so that it's there when we need it. They have been budgeting against that revenue irresponsibly. And, uh, Governor, and, and Governor Baker needs to own that and take responsibility for it. He got slapped by Standard & Poor's last week. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why we're now in a, in a very precarious uh, position. He's scrambling to, to once again close a big budget hole and uh, is setting us up for a crisis. There is one other aspect to this, which is that uh, we voted a number of years ago to steadily lower our uh, t income tax rate. And, you know, that may have seemed like a great idea to families saying, you know, I could get a few hundred dollars more. And I understand that. But uh, overall, the impact is terrible because as you gradually and systematically every year lower the revenue available to you, then it becomes harder and harder in the face of rising costs to continue to do even what you have laid out to do, let alone the things that you can't really expect a you know a average family to understand the value of it right up front, but there are all these improvements that people assume government will make, but by gradually squeezing and cutting the sources of revenue, become further and further out of reach, and then that in turn uh, has a terrible effect on our political uh, economy in the sense that we stop imagining what we want to do. In other words, we think, well, this is pretty good, and that's all we're ever going to get. Part of what, what drives me is either because I've seen things in other countries that already exist that should be here, or I can easily imagine our new technologies across the board making the quality of life much better for regular families here, but people have lost hope. They've lost hope that government will ever be able to do that kind of bold project, so they're stuck with other, their, their situations. They're stuck in traffic. I think both Jay and I have had the experience of trying to get around the state to get to meetings or, you know, right after dinner, and you know we spend a lot of time just sitting in the car because our transportation systems and roads are, are so screwed up. So I, we've put ourselves in this position partly as a state, and that includes voters, preferring a, a short-term payback to a longer-term investment. That's also a question of making the argument about why we should aspire to something bigger and better. Just on Bob's point there, the income tax, this was the voters voted for this in 2000. It used to be, I think, 5.85%. Um, it's now down to 5.1. Uh, it has been triggering its way down um, year after year, and it's supposed to go down to 5%. That would mean um, once fully phased in, we would lose another 350 to $400 million in tax revenue. I have come out and said, enough. We, we've got to freeze the income tax rate where it is. We can't afford more tax cuts at this point. Um, now, the reason I like the fair share tax that we started this conversation about is it's not asking lower and middle income uh, uh, families to pay more right now. Mm -hmm. um, it is asking those who have done phenomenally well in this, uh, in this, uh, over this period of economic growth to pay a little bit more. 19,000 families earning more than a million dollars a year. There was an article, I think, in your um, magazine, Commonwealth Magazine, recently about a comment uh, Governor Baker made um, that, well, income growth has been really small, and so we can't ask, uh, so I'm not sure about the fair share tax because we, we'd be asking families um, to pay a f an additional 4%. We're asking those at the very top, 19,000 families in the state whose income growth, if you just look at that category, has far exceeded 4% growth over the last few years. 
So this is a this is a very fair proposal. It would make our tax structure more progressive, and it would generate meaningful new revenue to invest in helping everybody else who's been struggling to get by uh, make things a little easier for them. There's absolutely no reason why our governor should be silent on this question. People deserve to know where does Governor Baker stand. And, and one other thing. Um, we're not done even if we pass this amendment and it becomes law because we have a president who's determined to cut the amount of money coming from the federal government to states like Massachusetts. So uh, so we, we face upcoming future shortfalls, not to mention the potential economic downturn that Jay mentioned. So so we're just kind of driving nonchalantly towards this cliff, and uh, and we need to face up to that fact. Um, you know, there's, there's where we are now, where we could be if uh, Trump, tries to fulfill all the different things he wants to do. Um, and the path we're on right now is toward an intensifying fiscal catastrophe, depending on the combination of impacts. That's why this discussion of revenue can't just be an isolated thing about this, this one thing or that one project. This is, as I say, a first, a critical, modest first step in trying to make the uh, our revenue system a 21st century re revenue system rather than one that got uh, put in place 100 years ago and doesn't really suit our times. Um, obviously, the two of you are running for the Democratic nomination. There's a third gentleman running, too, Seti Warren. Why, uh, didn't, really? he, why didn't he join the, sign the statement with you two? Uh, I, I, don't, I can't speculate as to why he didn't. I can just tell you why I did. Uh, I, you know, this is, as I said, I thought... It would be extremely powerful if we joined together and made it clear to people that um, on the Democratic side, uh, this is important from our perspective. We think, we think it's a fundamental difference between um, where we stand and what Governor Baker's been offering, that we need, this is a fair way to generate meaningful new revenue to invest in our collective future. And we desperately need it. It is the right thing to do. And we are lockstep in support of this. Yeah, I have to say I'm disappointed with SETI. I mean, he has said that he's for the fair share uh, amendment, and he's criticized Governor Baker. And this was, I think, an exceptional opportunity to demonstrate democratic unity. So I don't know what his logic was, but I think it's a tremendous opportunity to demonstrate that uh, that though we may be competing for this particular spot, uh, we stand united around the significance of this particular act. So um, I, I'm sorry he made that decision. And do you think he's just hoping to sort of oppose taxes in general and not be pinned down on this one in the hopes that it'll pass, which polls show it would, and then he'll, if he gets reelected, he would benefit from that. In other words, he get all the benefit of not pushing for a tax, but he got to get all the revenues that would come with it. Talking about Governor Baker. That's correct. Mm -hmm. um, again, I don't know what, what, what his thinking is on this. I just know it's unacceptable. People deserve to know where their governor stands. He is our elected leader in this state. He should take a position on the most consequential public policy decision before the state right now. Okay. Bob Massey, thanks for joining us. And Jay Gonzalez, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And join us again next week on the podcast and subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Have a good week. Thanks. Thanks.